0: So we call this practice that we're doing metta practice, loving-kindness practice. But I really think it's everything practice, right? Because I'm sure if you are at all like me, you're not just feeling metta, right? You can feel metta, but also anger or fear or sadness or joy or calm or tiredness or resistance the the power of this practice is this inclusivity whatever's here in the heart the mind can we open to that can we meet that with kindness and keep coming back to this intention to wish well to everyone and everything and that it's interesting to see how that's often the mind heart's not its natural inclination In our sense of dividing things up, like, don't like, included, not included. I saw this cartoon a little while ago um, of a meditation class, something like this. People sitting, cross-legged, someone up the front giving instructions, and the instructions were, and now I want you to send out peaceful, loving thoughts to all sentient beings on the planet who have exactly the same political, economic, and religious beliefs that you do. So that's not our intention here. But we can see how we, it's so easy to go that way. You know, who, who we align with, what we feel okay about, and then the other, the othering. And this is really, this practice really explores the full potential of our hearts, really stretching them and stretching them in all directions in that kind of inclusivity of people beings with other beliefs and views than ours but sometimes the biggest stretch is meta or kindness towards ourselves right that that willingness to actually have self-acceptance or even self-love when it's what most of us if not all of us so deeply want so deeply want i love this Poem by Hafez, the Sufi poet, where, and I'm sure this is a uh, poetic translation of the poem, could you say, admit something, everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Love me. Love me. He didn't say that. I said that. but (laughs) (laughs) But I said this morning, love is a charged word, right? We put that in the mix, and it creates a sense of ideas or idealisms. And so really to keep it simple as we're developing this practice or ex- expressing this practice, the basis of it is kindness, friendliness, goodwill, benevolence. I really like John Samedo. I think I've mentioned him a few times because he's very down-to-earth. He says, metta oft, is often translated as love. This word has many meanings for us. We usually connect it with liking. I love pizza means I like to eat it, not I have metta for it. With metta, you can love, but you don't have to like. Metta includes the opposite of liking, not liking. Liking depends on circumstances or mood. Metta doesn't. When metta is idealistic, it doesn't work. I should love my mother. Or we can send to all beings but can't feel for the people we know because we feel we always have to like them, and sometimes we don't. This kind of metta can't include difficulties. When a child is misbehaving, the conditions for liking aren't there, but unconditional love still can be. Liking requires certain conditions. Metta doesn't. We should use ideals like guiding stars to be able to acknowledge that current realities may not be ideal. But this simple definition of metta can still be accessible. And so we use this practice of repetition of the phrases, the the, uh, connecting over and over again to explore the potential of our own hearts and minds, beginning right where they are to understand them, and often to heal them. So many of us have wounds and hurts that we carry with a sense of limitation or dis-ease. And this practice I really think it strengthens our heart, it makes it more resilient, more tender, more responsive, and these qualities of kindness, etc., more accessible. Because it's easy to be overwhelmed by the negativity in the world. I mean, you know, our downfall is we have so much information at our fingertips these days, and a lot of it is not good news, right? There's just more of the same of hatred and prejudice and cruelty and um, injustice, intolerance, the inequities existing in the world today are just mind-boggling, you know, the difference in lifestyles between people. Um, And so we start to open to that with a sense, though, not of, oh, I can't bear this, but this too. This too, and to start to understand how those actions come out of delusion, come out of self-centeredness, out of fear, out of... And they're conditioned patterns out of people's experience. And there's so much you know, of this kind of violence, this kind of othering that comes out of ignorance, out of ignorance. Anytime we create a sense of self, we, by necessity, create an other. And in that, we start othering, making the other different, making the other not okay, this sense of separation. And with that, all of that host that we're often so familiar with of judging and comparing, good, bad, right, wrong. Um, The Buddha would say, even the same as is a form of judging. And we start to get a sense of how distorted our perceptions can be, sometimes how clouded our um, vision is, our views are, because they're filtered basically through the kalesas, through greed, aversion, and delusion. And here we just sit with that, with our own experience of that, not making it, oh, that's what's happening out there. Us too, this kind of delusion, ignorance, cloudedness. And this practice is a purification practice. It purifies literally our vision, our views, but it also works on this very deep, and uniquely personal uh, nature of purification. Our willingness to be with what's difficult, what comes up, anything that's an obstacle to this intention towards well-wishing, to our experience of whatever our phrases are, kindness, well-being, ease, contentment, safety, whatever is an obstacle to that, whether it's really looming and large, in our lives, or long distant past. It's like the the grit in your shoe that you feel. Our willingness to be with that. We can only transform what we hold in awareness. It doesn't happen, you know, in some abstract other out there. It's got to be held, known, felt, touched. But if we can hold it with that kind, accepting, non-judgmental, metta the transformations that can happen through this practice really deep and profound but this is not easy this purification aspect you know i'm i'm hoping you all have enough experience with metta that you didn't have the ideals oh when we do the metta section it'll all be good you know just metta all the time no i mean it's really difficult this practice so just being kind to yourself. I had one student on a retreat, and they said uh, one retreat was worth a year of therapy, and a meta retreat was worth two years. Mm-hmm. I think I think there's something to that. Just being willing to be in this deep process with ourselves, not conjuring something up to, in performance with the therapist or the other. You know, there's great value in that, in being seen and held by the other. But to do that for ourselves, to learn how to sit with ourselves and attend to our own hearts, something so powerful about that, because then we're attending to our own unique conditioning, each one of us, completely unique, different individual, yet underneath with these same universal wishes, safety, happiness, health, well-being. So we hold both, we hold both. And we relax into the supportive conditions that are here on a retreat like this. I mean, it's so rare to have this time, a whole month, with kindred spirits on this journey for the whole month. Very precious. We've talked about that the proximate cause For metta, for this well wishing is reflecting on the goodness of the the person, the being you're sharing metta with, and acknowledge that that can be hardest to reflect on for ourselves. It can be so easy to think of what's wrong with ourselves, with our actions, with our past, with our experience right now. uh, You know, just could, if I asked you, you'd probably easily come up with a list of 10 things that could be improved, right? Mm-hmm. And we have, many of us, a tendency to diminish our goodness, our good actions. Oh, anyone would have done that. That was nothing, you know, that was just sort of normal or whatever. This tendency to heighten and see, you know, ponder on what's, what's difficult, what doesn't feel right, and then diminish or ignore the goodness, what is it like to really open to our goodness? And again, not having to recite the list of all the great things you've done. I, again, I love Ajahn Sumedho. He says when he does this reflection, he doesn't sort of think of specific actions, even though as a great teacher, he's done a lot of good in the world. He just says, I know I love goodness and I love good people. And that's enough to brighten his heart and make that alignment with goodness just I love good people and I think I think all of us would probably say that so it can just be as simple as that that willingness and it's like practicing mudita; it just lifts the heart a little when we really reflect on how good people actually can be we hear so many news of what's people when people aren't behaving well right there's so many examples of that the news is just full of these kind of dramatic stories you know the classic journal journalism line if it bleeds it leads it's like where's the greatest disaster of the day that we can report about and so much that's good just doesn't really get acknowledged our practice here is to notice when things are beautiful when our heart feels beautiful when it's appropriate to express it but certainly to feel it i loved one of these things you collect online. It was a a Twitter post, so very succinct. And this is a father who wrote, stuck in traffic, three-year-old in the back seat. Kid out of nowhere. I love you, Dad. Me. Oh, wow, thanks. What made you say that? Kid. I just felt it for a little minute. (laughs) Me. Wait. Wait. The feeling is gone now? Kid. Yeah. (laughs) Me. Will it come back? Kid. Someday, maybe. I just can't know right now, Dad. (laughs) But he felt it and he expressed it. That's the cool thing. Just, it really touched me that. And it's like that, right? It can be fleeting. But if we can feel it, if it's appropriate, express it, even to ourselves, that's what helps really ground us in this practice. So we begin this practice traditionally, as we've said, with metta for self, said to be the easiest place. This beautiful um, teaching of the Buddha where he said, you can search throughout the entire universe, for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. That's said to be just sort of obvious. But most of us have a conflicted relationship with ourselves, right? We've learned to be self-critical. It's almost sort of part of the, the air we breathe, the water we drink through our schooling, with all of its academic comparing, in athletics, certainly, you know, around all these cliques and friends and school about what we wear, what we look like, etc. And many of us have taken in the message, internalized the message that we're not okay, that we're deficient in some way, people Don't like us. Again, this is from Jules Pfeiffer, who's a cartoonist. He said, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) We take it in, right? Even if it's not in a helpful way. I collect these things, so here's another one. We can be our own worst enemies. Do you ever read News of the Weird, which is this guy who collects real news stories, and you're like, really? So, Chesapeake, Virginia, inmate Robert Lee Brock filed a $5 million lawsuit against Robert Lee Brock, (laughs) accusing himself of violating his religious beliefs and his civil rights by getting himself drunk enough that he could not avoid various criminal behaviors. He wrote, I want to pay myself $5 million for this breach of rights, but I ask the state to pay it on my behalf (laughs) since I can't work and I am a ward of the state. Good try, Robert Lee Brock. In April, the lawsuit was dismissed. So we can be our own worst enemies. We're often harsher, and more critical in this internal dialogue than we certainly express to anyone else and probably more than anyone expresses to us. This tendency to critical inner dialogue. And so beginning to be aware of that patterning, however strong, you know, every now and then I meet someone who says, no, I don't really have that. I'm like, really? But for many of us it's it's very persistent perhaps we've worked with it but it's still there and so we need to see that patterning that's an obstacle to meta and to really understand that these are conditioned patterns we've taken this in it's not telling us the truth about who we are or what we're like it really is a belief that's being formed and so starting to look at this inner inner narrator or the commenter, you know that voice in your mind that's always saying, do this, don't do that, now more of this, less of that, what about this, what are they doing, should I be doing that? You know the one I mean. That, you know, most of the time we don't even realize that it's going on. It's just commenting, judging, you know, navigating, sort of reassuring Uh, ruminating, etc. In meditation, we really get to see that part of our mind. It's often one of the first insights is, will you look at this mind and what it says? And I mean, I always say the mind has no shame. It'll comment and go on about the littlest, littlest thing, right? And actually bring us a great deal of suffering. Because this inner voice for many of us isn't neutral. It's got a critical edge to it again, this not okay, not okay in here, not okay out there. Or sometimes it's not okay, they're not okay, I'm okay, but they're not okay, you know, whatever way it works. And so beginning to bring this into the field of our practice, I think is essential, because it's really shaping our view of ourselves and the world. I, I, You know, I've had to work with this. It's been a a lot of very painful for me this judging, critical um, attitude towards myself. So I did some exploration. And a book that I really liked was written by Byron Brown called Soul Without Shame, because he brings in a spiritual element to this work of self acceptance. He says, Judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, It is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard even to become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. So it's not just kind of a nice thing to do or a side detour of you know be good to fix that a little bit it really is incredibly important if if you have that tendency of mind to begin to work with it and quieting transforming the inner critic is one of the powerful ways that this practice is healing and and really works because what we're doing over and over again is creating this foundation of love and care and kindness and acceptance. And that can't coexist, as Guy was saying the other night, with this ill will, with this judging. And the more that gets stabilized, the more we bring acceptance to our experience, to our minds, to our bodies, to the inner, to the outer, the more this... um, transformation can happen. And so, again, really uh, an important part of this practice. Just the saying of the phrases for meta, for meta, for self, may I be safe, may I be happy. If you're willing to say that, again, it can't exist with, you're, ba- you're bad, you're wrong, you're not good enough, right? The more we just keep saying them, even if you don't mean them. I used that line I got from Carol, you know, fake matter is better than real aversion. She always throws away these lines and they're so good. I remember hearing the first time uh, someone suggesting doing this phrase that I gave you this morning, may I love and accept myself just as I am. And I went, what? (laughs) Really? No, no, can't do that. And you know, sort of like... Man up, you know, gulp and, and say it. And, uh, you know, I said it, but I didn't mean it. But if I kept, I kept saying it, and something shifts. It has to shift if you keep creating that intention. And in that phrase, why I like it as suggested is, may I love and accept myself, both of those important, just as I am not at the end of the retreat or the 10-point improvement program or when I get rid of this thing or fix that problem, just as I am in all my imperfections. And so this process can just keep deepening. doesn't have to be in a dramatic way, but just this willingness to keep coming back to kindness and to see how we have created this self-limitation through the projections and the input from others, where we felt sort of defined by others, you know, guidance and criticism, especially our authority figures, you know, you're not like this, you're too much like that. And we start to touch into these deeper truths what's really true for us, what's really important for us, what do we value, what do we care about. And the meta just keeps keeps us knowing that, keeps us circling around that, reminding ourselves of that. And so we start to touch, perhaps it's just moments, where there's some sense of deep acceptance, some sense of good enough, good enough, okayness. Can be profound, just that, doesn't have to be some ecstatic bliss, but just this simple acceptance can remember my first meta retreat again sort of like I at IMS a six-week part of the three-month retreat so it wasn't a meta retreat I don't think they were offered that frequently back then so I hadn't had a lot of instructions in meta in fact I pretty much hated Metta. I thought it was soppy and ineffectual and fake and whatever until, you know, I said that to myself enough that I realized it's probably what I actually needed to do. So I signed up for a six-week retreat at IMS and told my teachers I wanted to do Metta. So again, I wasn't getting a lot of instruction. The talks, the instructions weren't about Metta. Um, necessarily there was a little bit but not you know consistently and just get my um, guidance from meetings with my teachers one two or three times a week so I had to figure a lot out myself I can't say it was the easiest well I shouldn't jump ahead um But I decided, you know, that was my intention. So I started developing the practice and, you know, beginning, as they said, quite traditionally, for self and then benefactor. Well, I got stumped right there, just like I said this morning. Didn't have a benefactor. I had never had a close teacher relationship. I'd had teachers, but only in the context of a retreat. And then I'd go and I wouldn't see them again. Um, didn't feel there'd been someone in my life in that role that had really looked out for me or cared for me. And that was really hard to, to feel that, to feel that lack of, of that kind of relationship, especially when I was being told, this is who you do. I, we weren't, they were, they weren't so flexible back then. It was like, do this and then you do that. And so I really struggled. I ended up choosing the Dalai Lama because, you know, as we've said, he's a great inspiration. And I had, I've had a little direct contact with him, not, you know, I mean, like shaking his hand in a line. I used to live in McLeod Gunge near where he lives, and we'd see him, you know, around town kind of thing, not informally, but um, anyway, he's just always been inspiring for me. So it was good, but it wasn't great, you know. And so I go into my teacher and I just say, well, it's kind of warm. You know lukewarm, it's not hot or bliss or you know I'd all these ideas of what meta should be, right um, it should be the glowing heart and all inclusive and a slightness and gl- you know love, et cetera and I wasn't feeling that, and I remember going in and you know saying, this was okay, but it wasn't great and at one point, my teacher sort of offering a said situ- why't do you try this and I don't know about you, but after a practice meeting, I remember going down the stairs at IMS and trudging down to my walking place. I always walked on that um, pathway between the garden and the parking lot. And the, you know, as I walked down there, solidified in my mind was what what my teacher had really meant, which was, oh my God, she's hopeless. You know, maybe she tries that. That's a last-ditch attempt, and then you know, I don't know what we'll do after that. Is what I was convinced he had said Um, and I just started chewing on that you know oh this is hopeless why did I think I could do this six weeks you know I should have known this is terrible I'm a fraud I can't love I'm unloved you know the whole thing and it was very familiar to me I just saw this abyss of despair that was it was tempting or I was in it you know just these stories about not good enoughness and I remember you know the school bus going by I'm like can I flag down the school bus you know we'd rented out our house or a house sitter or whatever you know I didn't have a car didn't my ticket home wasn't for another month or so there's no way out I even had the thought could I fake it for the rest of the time I just go in and say oh it's great Meta I love Meta it's going really well yeah it's good we know if you do that, so don't, don't try that. <laughs> but I'll never forget, there was this moment of grace where I just had the thought, you know, this is very familiar, to be really critical, uh, you know, harsh, hopeless, despairing. And you, can, you could do that. You could do that. Go ahead. You could do it for hours or days, maybe even weeks. But at some point, you would come out of that. Something would shift. The mood would lighten. Something would bring you out of that state of despair because that's usually what, that's what's happened in the past. And I had the thought, what would it take to get from here to there, to that shift, to that lightness of mind and heart? And I realized what it would take is that I would have to accept that this is what my matter practice looks like. It's not, you know, bliss and golden light and rainbows and unicorns. It's just very lukewarm. <laughs> I forget what I, but just, it was just this. That's what my metta looked like. That's all I can do right now. And that acceptance was like, just take a big breath and take the next step and say a phrase. And I'd love to say, oh, and then all the, you know, the the clouds opened up and the rays of light shone down and they didn't. But I just kept doing the practice and that retreat became enormously profound and enormously healing for me, both through the concentration that was deepening, but also having times of real purification like that was, but also of the meta feeling, but it could only develop through this acceptance. So it's why I said what I said this morning, I have a really low bar just being willing to say the phrases. That has to be good enough. And then, you you know, it'll build, it's conditioned, it'll come and go. But unless we have that basic intention, we, we can't move forward. And so that was really profound for me. And so all of us have, you know, our... Our place, our barrier, our, our, you know, the place we, or old feelings and memories that'll come up again in this purification process. It is amazing. I mean, I know, I've seen it myself. Other people say, I haven't thought of this for years. You know, when in third grade I made fun of, you know, this other child's glasses that they were wearing or something like that, and just this feeling of, Guilt or shame about that, or when someone hurt you—you know—they didn't invite you to their birthday party, and you've been—you didn't think it was still there. So it can be long distant, not seeming huge, or it can be more recent. It will come up if we if we're in this kind of practice for long enough, with. This kind of processing, I mean, I've talked about the creativity of our responses. You know, there's no right thing to do. The basic instruction is always, can I meet that with metta? Can I actually bring kindness to this experience of pain or grief or shame or loss? Can I hold it? Can I breathe with it like we did with the Anapanasati? Can I send myself metta if we were doing it for someone else, come back to metta for self? or perhaps even self-compassion. This is really hard when this hurt, this memory, this confusion, this worry, this fear comes up. See if some aspect of the Brahmaviharas can meet that. If it really can't, if we just find ourselves pulled back again and again into the story, into the feelings, then again, just like with the breath meditation, we use mindfulness, vipassana. We just drop into, let me feel this. What's going on here? What story am I believing? We use that RAIN acronym. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. I don't think we've mentioned it here. Recognize, accept, um, bring interest to it or intimacy, and then non-identification or just this natural nature. So we then we can move to it, hold it with spaciousness. And once we really start to trust our capacity to meet all of these different experiences, the highs and the lows, this is the resilience that I spoke about that's so empowering. And from that place, there can be a much more genuine or stable um, potential for wishing well to others. Often wishing well for others is easier for us but untru- until we're truly able to wish well to ourselves, it's not fully stable. It's not fully embodied. So, the the time spent on meta for self, time well spent. Time well spent. And so then, as many of you know, we begin to open up to other categories. Um, and there are always some guidelines in who we choose. I've said already, you know, you choose this one person for each category um, and hold, stay with them for the practice period, in this case, the rest of our time here. Um, we can... If, if the benefactor is a category that works for you, where you have an easy relationship, um, it's really helpful. With the benefactor, what we look for is that this person or being um, has qualities that really spark joy or appreciation. It's like we have a sense of mirroring or or we would also like to express those qualities the wisdom the kindness the love the generosity the ease the calm Um, and as I said for me that was really difficult I didn't feel I had that and so why we use this easy category and one of the you know ways I can be can be skillful is we can use someone who's not sort of generally can we would consider a benefactor, but maybe there was that one time where they said something that was really helpful, really shifted something for us. Or, you know, they came and visited us while we were sick and we hadn't seen them for ages, something. And can we just focus on that aspect of them or that, even that action, and that ability to not, you know, have to bring in the complexity of who they are or our relationship to them, But that good action or intention, that training is really an important part of the metta. This is the focusing on the goodness. We acknowledge that there's all the other stuff, but we keep coming back to what meets that, um, what supports that heart opening or that sense of appreciation. And so we've also talked about using a child, you know, maybe a god godchild or a a grandchild or someone you know you know in your community that just sparks joy when you think of them or a pet you know dogs I was going to say cats unconditional love they can you know it's a little more mysterious but (laughs) dogs definitely James Barras often says he uses he had a dog he was a great dog the dog was called pal it's like my pal and he, James had one of those cushions that said, I hope to be the person my dog thinks I am. So, you know, anything that really brings that buoyancy to the heart um, is really supportive. And then the other part of the triad is the person in the friend or dear friend category. And again, this relationship is a little more complex naturally. Um, If we're lucky, we have a few to choose from. And as I've already said, this is not about, you know, well, you're my BFF and you're not. Um, It's really choosing whoever comes easily to mind and heart and know that they're just representative of, of your other friends. It's like they're in the front of the line, but the others are all there. But staying with the one person for an extended period of time, we get to go through the ups and downs that any relationship has. And with any friend, as dear as they might be, they've annoyed you, frustrated you, irritated you, let you down, as have you them. You know, it's it's almost inevitable. Put two people together and that rub will happen. And so we have to look out for, you know, the other improvement program. You know, oh, as you think of this person, may you be happy if you just did this a little more and that a little less, or, you know, a different job, I think, would be better for this person. You know, whatever it is. Um, It's so easy to fix other people, isn't it? To give relationship advice and much harder to look within. That's not unconditional love. It really has to be, again, love and accept them just as they are. It's really quite profound. Many people often use their family members in this category. It's blessing again if you 've got family members that feel you feel that kind of warmth and friendliness for. I read there was a British study where they asked people, "What caused you the most stress today?" and the, 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 the most common answer was family. But then the next question, what promoted the most happiness? family, both right. The practice in metta is not to deny or diminish where it's difficult, but can we keep coming back to where there is warmth and appreciation and affection and well-being? That training is so empowering. And so, as we've said, it's natural as we bring in these different people that the flood of memories will come, all the associations and the practice is not to tell ourselves those stories but to see if we can hone into tune into the feelings that are there that support the matter you know not you know we know the complex ones and we let them just rest but keep coming back to where the connection is i like this poem by michael lunick he's an australian cartoonist that has a very whimsical sometimes ironical sense of humor, but he he draws cartoons, but he also writes poetry. And he says, we give thanks for our friends, our dear friends. We anger each other. We fail each other. We share this sad earth, this tender life, this precious time. Such richness, such wildness. Together we are blown about. Together we are dragged along. All this delight, all this suffering, All this forgiving life, we hold it together. Amen. Mm -hmm. It's a prayer. So all of it, the complexity, but we keep coming back to, can we find this intention for warmth and friendliness? So they're generally considered to be our easy category, self-benefactor friend. Then there's this turning point. Mm -hmm. And if you've done this practice, most of you have had some uh, exposure to metta, you'll know the sequence we move to what's called the neutral person and then potentially the difficult person. And so the turning point away from where it's easy and those that we know and care about to someone who's neutral and then possibly someone who's difficult and what's interesting, and we'll, we'll, we'll introduce those in a day or so, but really leave it up to you how much you do. In the form of, format of this retreat, we're really wanting this period of practice, as I said at the beginning, to just bring in the warmth of the heart. Um, and each of us will find our own way. But traditionally we do the neutral person, and it can be so revealing Because when we're asked to choose someone neutral, we often say, choose someone on the retreat. You don't know. And so the mind starts looking around, or the eyes look around, and it's like, nope, nope, (laughs) Nope. like, dislike, nope, not sure about that person. The mind, you see how easily the mind makes judgments, that it's so rare to truly be neutral about someone. And so then it's always like, choose the most neutral it doesn't have it's it's very rare it's hard to stay neutral and what happens is as we pick someone and, and start developing meta they very quickly not become not neutral we start to care I remember doing it at IMS picking someone I really didn't know at all I didn't even know her name and I'd be so excited when I saw her and concerns like, is she eating enough? And, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know where she walks, where does she, you know, and just, uh, and I hadn't even really noticed her before. So just starts to care. And I remember hearing the story again about the Dalai Lama. Um, people think he's sort of got some magical qualities, but I don't think he does. He he stayed in some hotel. And apparently as he went about, you know, through the elevators and the food and the whatever, he he just made connections with people. I don't know what he did, but just very simple. He touched so many people that when he left, most of the staff lined up to offer him a bow. You know, and this is not in a Buddhist hotel or anything. It's just his, they felt his caring as he moved about just, going through the hotel and he says what I do isn't mysterious I just look for what connects us for our common humanity not for what separates us and then the difficult person again it'd be your choice if you do how much you do some of you I've spoken to is like the mind just going there it's like this is a challenge for me the heart feels closed here You know, this is now my project. How do I fix this? And we've got to remember this isn't about fixing. It really is about this um, opening of our own hearts. So we'll talk more about working with the difficult person, but really has to be skillful. You know, you have to feel ready. We always say don't choose the most difficult. People often do, but we still say it. Don't choose the most difficult. It's amazing how little difficult, people can be to be problematic for us, especially when we're getting kind of sensitive and tender. Um, Just a little irritation can make the heart contract. So don't choose the most difficult and really balance it. Find your way in that practice. But some reflection can also be helpful if there's someone you have that's difficult for you right now or in the past. You know, they're also acting out of their confusion, their calaces, their fears, can be helpful to try and understand their their loneliness or sadness or or, um, childhood that maybe um, has caused them to act that way. They're all trying to find their own way to happiness, trying to protect themselves or what they believe is right. And so this kind of... um, feeling into. And then if it doesn't feel right, always okay to back away. What often is a challenge to working with the difficult person is we feel we need to forgive something or yeah, to f- that there needs to be forgiveness. And we can't. We can't forgive them. They've harmed us in such a way that that doesn't feel possible. We might know that it would be a good thing. We can So I have a sense of the benefits of forgiveness. But we have to admit when we're sometimes not ready. And that's why, again, we say don't go to where it's most difficult. But it is a powerful process to actually forgive, to forgive someone, certainly to forgive ourselves. um, But I'm talking more now about forgiving someone else. Sharon Salzberg said, it's so difficult, it's a kind of death. She says, to be able to forgive is so deep a letting go that it is a type of dying. We have to be able to say, I am not that person anymore and you are not that person anymore. Really acknowledge the change. But sometimes that person hasn't really changed, is still acting in a harmful way, or perhaps they've died and then the relationship is stuck in that way what we have to recognize is this is about us it's not about them and to really reflect on the barriers to forgiveness if we're if and when we're ready to do that i often think that even holding the possibility of forgiveness you might not be ready but you you feel you want to move in that direction or it might be possible that in and of itself can be enormous but when we're ready to Begin that journey of forgiveness again. There's all kinds of reasons why we might not be ready. That we tell ourselves it's not okay. So you have to, you know, make sure you feel safe when we're practicing with the difficult person. Sometimes, often we talk about bringing the person in, feeling them in your heart. No, like have them be far away, really tiny, you know, as a child. Make yourself feel safe, and but we recognize that forgiving doesn't mean condoning. It doesn't mean that what happened was okay. It doesn't minimize what happens, the harm that happened. It just is an expression of not wanting to be trapped in those difficult emotions of fear or resentment or shame or confusion. We feel it kind of might open a doorway. If we forgive here, what about this, 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 and this? There's kind of a, you know, a list and, and we may not feel ready. We have to be, be okay about that. A big one is they haven't apologized. I can't forgive them until they admit what they did wrong. Um, but then we have to really see we're giving the other person control over our sense of well being. We can't make them apologize or make them recognize the harm that's been done. This is about our claiming our own well being. And it can be a lot about self-righteousness. You know, they did wrong. I'm right, they're wrong. And this energy that can come from that, this this um, uh, indignation. Uh, and we see forgiveness as giving in, again, letting them win. And again, it's not about that. We can see the not forgiving as a punishment, getting revenge on someone, holding them out of our hearts. I remember Sylvia Borstein, you know, talking, she's always so kind of human about this, she said, I'd tell myself, just five minutes of vengeful thoughts, and then I'll forgive. (laughs) It's like, and then she said, it wasn't worth it. It was just, it was just actually painful. And But eventually, we come to a place where we see it's, it is too painful to hold on in this way. We have to do it skillfully, again, with great kindness. But for our own peace of mind, peace of heart, and actually as I was thinking I would talk about forgiveness, in the New York Times this week was a whole article on forgiveness saying it's healthier for you if you need any other uh, motivations. It was called, Let Go of Your Grudges, They're Doing You No Good, And it's by Tim Herrera, who writes the Smarter Living articles often. And this is what he said. He said, a 2006 study published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology as part of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project. And I love that Stanford University has a forgiveness project and a compassion project, right? Something good happening there. Suggested that skills-based forgiveness training may prove effective in reducing anger as a coping style, reducing perceived stress and physical health symptoms, and thereby may help reduce the stress we put on our immune and cardiovascular systems. Further, a study published this year, 2019, found that carrying anger into old age is associated with higher levels of inflammation and chronic illness. Another, another study from this year found that anger reduces our ability to see things from other people's perspective. This is a quote, holding onto a grudge really is an ineffective strategy for dealing with a life situation that you haven't been able to master. That's the reality of it, said Dr. Frederick Luskin, the founder of the Stanford Forgiveness Project. Whenever you can't grieve and assimilate what has happened, you hold it in a certain way, he said. If it's bitterness, you hold it with anger. If it's hopeless, you hold it with despair. But both of these are psychophysiological responses to an inability to cope, and they both do mental and physical damage. Actually physically harmful to hold on in this way. And so this kind of letting go the ease that can come as we begin to accept the things that have happened and find our way to forgiveness because it doesn't work to compartmentalize oh i can love and be kind and gracious and and uh, warm here but not here this has to be a full and complete experience. This is the ultimate uh, intention of metta, is all beings held equal. And so we end the practice with metta for all beings. This potential for an undifferentiated opening and radiating of the metta. And we'll introduce this uh, beginning by using phrases where there's different ways of doing it both to different categories of beings in different directions, but ultimately just this resting in a field of metta, kind of radiating it in all directions. And again, we'll start doing the chant in a little bit, the suffusion with the divine abidings. I love this, where we just abide, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, pervading the world with a heart imbued with metta. This sense of expansiveness, um, Upwards to the sky and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. This possibility of opening. And that may seem at times impossible. At other times, it's like that's actually easier. It's kind of vague. Oh, I can love all beings, but I said, but not this particular one here. We've got to work with both this potential for expansiveness. And there are so many examples of people who have transcended huge amounts of pain and injustice in their lives and developed these open, inspiring, loving hearts. I I often think of Maya Angelou, had a really difficult life. I mean, I only know a little bit of her life story, but very challenging childhood experience. So traumatic that she was mute for years because she felt... Um, the ep- effects of what had happened to her, and became this amazing, inspiring poet and activist and uh, accomplished storyteller. You know, writer of her uh, bio, autobiographies, and she says she's got she such great quotes. She says, "Hate, it has caused a lot of problems in the world, but it has not solved one yet. Not solved one." And have enough courage to trust love one more time. If you trust love one more time than hate, then love wins. One more time and always one more time. So, this formal practice will do, but it's more just coming back again and again to this intention. All beings, may they be happy healthy and at ease, this well-wishing, but it begins here, begins here in this heart, this mind, this body, acceptance right here, and then it opens up, then it's resilient, then it's something that we can really begin to have more accessible even when the conditions aren't ideal this capacity to feel, and again, not be, but feel safe, or at ease, or at home, healthy, wherever you are, with an open heart and a clear mind. I want to finish with another poem from the, tra- the, the the. he doesn't want to call them translations, they're more inspirations from the Theragata, the, Poems of the First Free Women by Maddie Weingast. And this is by Mitta, and it means friend, and you can feel the association with Metta, Mitta, like Kalyana Mitta, spiritual friend, Mitta. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, Fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. And this is really what metta does. It leads us home to this state of well-being, ease and acceptance and from that the heart and the mind can flower. So let's just let the word settle. So again, thank you for your attention. About a half hour now for for walking. If you have energy for the last sit, formal sit here with chanting, Dawn will invite you into chanting the Metta Sutta. Lovely way to close the evening, the day of practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit